Sure would be nice if I could see Jesus. If I could see his hands or hear his voice or give him a hug or fall down at his actual feet and not just in my carpet again. If only Jesus were here with me, if I could see him and hear him and touch him, even maybe spend a week with him. Well, wouldn't that be much better? My goal tonight is to show you that that's not true. It would not be better. Um, Of course, at the end of time, when all has been accomplished and all of God's people are with him in glory, that will be best. But I'm talking about in the here and now, while God's plan of salvation is still unfolding, uh, while he's still saving people in real time and place, would it be better if we could see him, hear him, touch him? The answer is no. In fact, as we'll see tonight, it is clearly better that he is away. So we have uh, two passages tonight. One is from John 16. One is from 2 Peter 1. And the reason we have two passages is because I want to show you two ways that we have it better than if Jesus were to live among us today. So go ahead and turn to John 16. We'll work there first. Uh, You've heard Dr. Young speak about this recently on Sunday mornings. This section of the Gospel of John is within the last few hours of Jesus' life. Within the next few hours, he will be arrested. He will be beaten. He will be tortured and put to death on the cross. He will then rise from death. He will go back to heaven. But before all of this happens, he is preparing his disciples for life after, uh, after he's gone. He's equipping them with the truth that they will need in order to endure his death and in order to continue to follow him when he goes back to heaven. So let's pick up in the second half of verse four, John 16, four through seven. This is the word of God. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus has not told his disciples the things that he's now telling them in John 13 through 16 until now because he's been with them. But because he's about to leave and and go back to heaven, now is the time to tell them these things that he's telling them. And in verse 6, he says that his disciples are sad about him going away. Understandably so, they had given up their lives to follow Jesus. Now all of a sudden, he's leaving. But look at what he says in verse 7. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, we we find out who the helper is just before this in chapter 15, verse 26. says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So the helper is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Essentially, Jesus says to his disciples, cheer up. I know you're sad, and I know you may not understand this, but it's better for you if I go. It's really an amazing statement. Uh, Every time I read it, it it shocks me. Here they are living life with the Christ, the Messiah, the appointed one, the son of God, God in flesh. 
They have seen his miracles firsthand. They have heard his teachings about how he's the bread of life and the living water. They were there at the Sermon on the Mount. Better, how's it better if he leaves? Jesus says, if I don't go away, the spirit won't come. But if I go, I will send the spirit to you and it will be better for you when he comes, better than if I were to stay. So fast forward, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He gave them the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always till the end of the age. So he died, he rose, he appears to his disciples, he gives the great commission and he told them to go wait on the Holy Spirit because he was gonna send the Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to carry out the great commission. And in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, the Spirit came and filled Jesus's first followers, these early disciples, the first Christians, just like Jesus said they, that he would. And this is better than if Jesus would have stayed with them. But he not only filled the first Christians, the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian. Ephesians 1.11 says, you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was deposited in you at conversion, was deposited in me, and, and is in, lives inside every, every Christian. This is one of the reasons that we're in a better position than if Jesus lived among us. The Spirit has come and dwells inside of us. Two quick reasons why it's better. You can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter two. Uh, the first way that it's better is that the Holy Spirit transforms who we are. God not only gives grace to forgive us, he also gives grace to transform us. My, my favorite example of this in scripture is Peter. Weak Peter famously denied Jesus three times leading up to his death. Jesus told him he would do it. Peter denied that he would ever do such a thing. And then he did it three times in a row. But look at Acts chapter two. The spirit comes at the beginning of Acts chapter two. Uh, it's the time of Pentecost, one of these big feast festival things. So there are Jews from all over the world, it says, uh, in Jerusalem at that time to celebrate. And the, the coming of the Spirit, you can see in, in verses five and six, the, the coming of the Spirit causes quite a scene, so much so that everybody comes out to see what's going on. You know, loud noise, a lot of commotion, what's going on? And we find at the end of chapter two that at least 3,000 people were there. So the Spirit comes, fills God's people, for the first time lives inside of God's people, and the very next thing that happens is Peter preaches to at least 3,000 people. Now, that's, I mean, three times our largest services on a Sunday, and this is, you know, weak Peter, who denied Jesus three times just like not that long ago transformed by the Holy Spirit, weak Peter becomes bold Peter, and he preaches the first Christian sermon. You can find his sermon in uh, verses 14 through verse 40, and we find in verse 41 that 3,000 people got saved. So that's why I say there's at least 3,000 people there. Who knows how many people were there? But 3,000 people got saved because weak Peter was transformed into bold Peter, and he can't stop. 
He preaches again in chapter three. He preaches again in chapter four. He's thrown in jail. He still can't stop. They tell him to shut up. He won't shut up. And this isn't Germantown, Tennessee in 2014. This is first century Jerusalem. Jesus was just murdered. And he is a follower of Jesus. People are threatening Peter and threatening all of the other disciples' lives, and most of them will end up dying for their faith. Weak Peter became bold Peter. It is better that the Spirit comes. It's better that Jesus not stay because the Holy Spirit transforms us. We're not only with Jesus, but we become like Jesus. The next reason it's better, pretty practical, is that 12 followers has now become millions upon millions of followers. Jesus lived on earth in a pretty small surface area with a pretty small group of followers. But when he left, he, spent, he sent the Spirit to transform his followers and empower us to make more followers, go and make disciples of all nations. So here we are 2,000 years later, and in the last 2,000 years, countless millions have followed Christ. The Spirit transforms us individually and He multiplies us corporately. What a privilege it is to live. Maybe you've thought before, if I could have only have lived in that time when Jesus was on the earth. What a privilege it is to live in our day when, when Jesus is back in heaven sending the Spirit and, and the Spirit is being poured out on mankind. Weak Chris becomes bold Chris. Broken Chris becomes joyful Chris. Rebellious Chris becomes more and more faithful to Christ, Chris. Not in my own strength, but by God's grace in giving the Holy Spirit to me. All because Jesus went back to heaven and sent the Spirit. It's to our advantage that he did. One of my favorite examples of this transformation is a story that I heard from a guy named Ramez Atala, who is a pastor type in Egypt. I can't remember if he pastored a church or was a director of a ministry or something like that. Uh, but he was telling the story of this trash city. And they were living in Egypt. And uh, I think it was his wife that just started to grow a real burden for this trash city. And the trash city was a trash city. I mean, you walk in and uh, it's just filthy, no regard for anybody, trash everywhere in people's homes, in the street. The stench is you get miles away and you can tell you're getting close. Just the foulest thing you can imagine. He showed pictures of it when he was telling the story. It's just foul. Uh, but, but his wife gets a burden for, and starts praying for this place. And they find a guy that is also praying for this place and, and has a burden to go and minister the gospel there. So he goes and he starts ministering the gospel and one by one, people start coming to Christ. And, and as people start coming to Christ, you know, they have this new regard for human life and just their surroundings. And so they start cleaning up their city and they start having trash receptacles and places where you put the trash. And this is a house, you live here, you don't throw trash here, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, more and more people are coming to Christ and, and they come together and they say, well, you know, the education system is really broken here. No one is advancing much past, I don't know, second grade education. We need to fix our education system. So they do, they start a school. And then there's all these children and what do we do now? And so what they would do for recess is take them up to the top of the mountain because even though it was cleaning up, it was still pretty filthy and the smell was just overwhelming. So you get fresh air on the top of the mountain, they'd have recess, you know, kick the soccer ball, whatever it is. While they're up on the mountain, they discover these old caves like nine of them, I believe it was. And 
uh, these caves look like they used to house some sort of meetings. I mean, they have like built-in chairs and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, there are people used to meet here for some sort of congregation. I don't know what it was, but, you know, there's all the inscriptions on the wall and that sort of thing. Um, so as more and more people come to Christ, more and more people are starting churches and the churches are meeting in these caves because they can go up to the top of the mountain where there's fresh air and they have a place to sit and it's just perfect. I imagine the acoustics were pretty good, you know, singing and all that. And then they discover this outdoor amphitheater that's somewhere up in this, around up on this mountain near this trash city. And a long story short, over some period of time, not too long, not too short, uh, the trash city hosted a national day of worship in Egypt with like 60,000 people that came from all over the land to worship Jesus. And so one reason it's better for Jesus to go away is because he sends the Spirit. The Spirit transforms us. He even transforms whole cities. The second reason is found in 2 Peter 1. So go ahead and turn there. In this uh, section that we'll read, Peter is recounting his experience at the transfiguration. You don't have to turn to here, but you can find the details of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. I'm going to tell you the details and you can, you know, go there if you want, but stick in 2 Peter 1. The transfiguration was when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain by themselves. And while they were there, Jesus was transfigured. It says that his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He was uh, showing them something like what he probably looks like now, his glorified state, what he will look like for all of eternity. And when he was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared. Now, to a Jew, nobody's bigger than Moses and Elijah. You know, you got the law and you got the prophets. Well, Moses gave the law and Elijah's the head of the prophets. So Peter gets excited and he, he thinks, Lord, this is great. How about I make three tents? Uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He thinks, I knew Jesus was a big deal. He's right up there with Moses and Elijah. But while he's still speaking, he gets cut off by God the Father. A bright cloud overshadowed them while Peter's speaking, and God the Father speaks from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The disciples hear this, Peter, James, and John, they fall to their faces, they're terrified. But as they're on the ground, Jesus touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they, when they get up and they look up, Jesus is the only one there. Moses and Elijah are gone. Peter thought Jesus is right up there with Moses and Elijah. And the clear message from God the Father is, no, I have one son. There won't be three tents. There's only need for one. This is Moses and Elijah's Lord. So in 2 Peter 1, 16 and following, Peter is recounting this experience at the transfiguration. I'll start reading where he says, at the end of 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 2 Peter 1, 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and when the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, think about what Peter just said. He said, we were eyewitnesses. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw him transfigured, and we heard it with our own ears. God the Father spoke audibly from heaven. We saw Jesus. We heard God the Father. Look what he says next. And we have something more sure. Whatever he's about to say, what he's saying is, we have something more sure than seeing Jesus transfigured into his glorified state, hearing God the Father at the same time speaking audibly. There's something more sure than that. We have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what he's saying, the prophetic word is Scripture. He, he, he says the prophetic word, and then he goes on to say no prophecy of Scripture. He's using those interchangeably. The prophetic word, by that he means Scripture. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have something more sure than seeing Jesus transfigured with our own eyes and hearing God the Father speak at the same time with our own ears. We have the Holy Spirit-authored Word of God. Peter was there, and Peter was used to write the Word, and he saw the whole thing, and he says, the Word is more sure. So not only is it better that Jesus would go back to heaven to send the Spirit, it's also better that Jesus goes back to heaven because he gives us the Word. The word is more sure than if we saw him right now. It's more sure than if we heard God the Father speak right now. And we would all do the same thing. We would fall down terrified. We wouldn't be able to bear it. But the word is more sure. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, It's a story that some of you have heard. I think it's worth telling again. It's about a series of events in my life where I had never been more sure of God's presence. And um, as I tell you the story, you too will be sure that God was there with me. I don't know how you wouldn't be unless you don't have a pulse. I have a friend uh, named Billy. Billy is in prison. Billy has been in and out of prison since he was 18. Billy is now 47. Just over a Uh, four years ago, I was working in a church on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and my pastor wrote an article in the South Mississippi newspaper, the Sun-Herald. I have the article uh, in a... um, It's funny, I didn't even put two and two together until a couple years later. When we were cleaning out and moving, this was in our office at the church, and uh, someone was like, do you want that? I was like, yeah, I guess I'll take it. And I didn't put two and two together. This was the article, but now it hangs on my wall, and you'll understand why it's so precious to me. But uh, the title of the article is Church Offers Grace for All the Misfit Toys. And basically, he's just saying grace for bad people. You know, have you blown it? You'll fit in here because that's who we are. Um, And so in response to the article, a couple prisoners write back, you know, they're like, that sounds pretty good. I mean, I've blown it. And uh, you're saying there's grace for me. Billy wrote a letter back to my pastor. But my pastor was in the process of moving 
So he gave the letter to me. I read the letter and I put the letter in my computer bag. It, you know, didn't say much other than really appreciated the article. That was about it. I sat, it sat there for a few months, a few months in my computer bag um, until one day I read it again and I decided, you know what, I'm going to write this guy back. So over many weeks, uh, Billy and I exchanged a few letters and I remember thinking about the fourth or fifth letter, this guy is my brother in Christ. Then in the next letter, Billy told me that he hadn't had a visitor in 10 years and it broke my heart. And when I read that, I vaguely remembered uh, some passage somewhere in scripture about we're supposed to remember those who are in prison so I told Tiffany, I said, I got to go see this guy. And I'll never forget that first visit. Uh, I was terrified. I didn't know what to expect. It's like a two-hour drive. I was scared the whole time. It, and it was powerful. It was overwhelmingly emotional. He hadn't had a visitor in 10 years. So you can imagine how powerful with brothers in Christ. I mean, we were in a cafeteria-type room with lots of other inmates and lots of other visitors. We must have been quite a scene. Uh, we hugged, we cried, we thanked God and prayed with Kleenex. And uh, Billy shared his testimony with me, which is just a precious story. But long story short, Wild Bill, as he's actually still known in prison, was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit while he was sitting in his jail cell. And that was about seven years ago. And he is a new creation. So over the next many months, Billy and I continued to write, and I visited him a couple more times, but then Tiffany and I moved here. We moved from the Mississippi coast back here. Billy and I continued to write, but now it's five or six hours to get there instead of one to two hours, and um, not really feasible to visit, you know, just for the day or whatever. But uh, a few months after we moved, Billy told me about this new low-security prison in Corinth, Mississippi. And Billy is a model inmate. Ever since he's become a Christian, he's like the jail's best friend. And I don't understand why he hasn't gotten out yet, but that's another story. Um, he knew that Corinth was close to Memphis, and so he was going to put in for a transfer because he thinks maybe, you know, if I'm there, we could visit again. And he also has some family members. There, he comes from a kind of poor background and there, his mother has been sick. And so he has some family members in North Mississippi. And he's thinking, if I get up there, maybe I could see them. Maybe they could come visit. And that has actually happened. He puts in for the transfer. He gets it. So we keep writing and then I go visit. Now, some, at some point while we were uh, still down on the coast, Billy told me that he really wanted to be married never been married, doesn't pretend in all that he's done that he deserves to be married. Nonetheless, he has this desire. It just won't go away. And now at that time, he had about three to four years left on his sentence. And so he tells me this and I'm thinking, well, brother, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you have this desire. If it's from the Lord, pray about it. And, you know, maybe he'll give you a wife. Um, of course, I'm thinking he'll be praying about it for three to four years, maybe in five or six years, he'll meet somebody. So Billy had been in Corinth now about six months and he had been praying about this desire of his to have a wife. One day he's in the cafeteria during visiting hours. So someone had then come and visit him, maybe a family member or something like that. And, and in walks this woman and she catches his eye. 
He thinks she's beautiful. Of course, he figures that she's either somebody's wife, somebody's mother, or somebody's baby's mama. So uh, she, but she sits down close to him and it turns out she is the sister of this guy that he's in prison with. Now they don't speak that much that day, if any, hello, I mean, um, but Billy asked this guy about his sister. Turns out that her husband had recently died within the last couple of years. And Billy asks, would it be okay if I speak to her? Connie's her name. And the brother says, sure. You know, thinks Billy's a great guy, all that. Well, Billy starts communicating with Connie and realizes that Connie is a godly Christian woman. Before you know it, they're married. They got married in the courthouse. They're coming up on their second anniversary. I saw them a couple weeks ago. They're happily married. She visits them every week. She just lives down the road. They read the Bible together over the phone. They're a sweet Christian couple. Billy prayed for a wife. God brought her to him. He gets out in less than a year, and he has a wife and a home waiting on him. But that's not all. A couple years ago, just after Connie and Billy got married, I was down there visiting, and I was telling Billy, every time I drive down to visit you, I think about a guy that I went to high school with. His name is Dan Cummings. Now, Dan was a couple years younger than me, but Dan and I hung out quite a bit in high school. Some of you may remember the story. Uh, Dan was in a terrible accident. He was a student at Ole Miss. He was pulled over. He had drugs in his car. He didn't want to get arrested, so he sped off while the officer was at his window. The officer got tangled up in the car, drug down the road, and killed. And Dan was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So I'm telling Billy about Dan telling Billy that Dan is always on my mind and on my heart as I drive down to visit Billy. I, I was burdened for Dan. I had heard that he wasn't doing well, and I was just telling Billy about Dan, hoping maybe he'd pray for him. You know, Billy's a good brother. I figured he'd pray for him. And as I'm telling Billy about Dan, Billy stops me, and he says, you talking about Daniel Cummins, Ole Miss student, Daniel Cummins? Yeah, that's him. Then Billy said, he just got shipped to Corinth and he's my roommate. We're staying on the same block and he sleeps in a bed right next to me. I could hardly speak. I still talk about it. I, I could hardly speak the rest of the day. I, I felt like God was so close to me, it scared me. I was the fear of God, kind of a whole new meaning. Now, after spending a few months there in Corinth, Dan was moved to another prison, and that's a, another story for another time. But the point that I'm trying to make is that I had never in my life been more sure of God's presence in my life than at that moment, at that table, in a prison in Mississippi. I'm sitting across from Billy and his wife, Connie, and I just told you how that whole thing comes together and I'm telling Billy that I've got a burden for this guy, Dan, wanting Billy to pray for him. And Billy tells me they sleep in beds next to each other. I had never been more sure of God's presence. Well, how much more sure do you think Peter, James, and John were when they saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain and heard God the Father speak audibly from the cloud? I was as sure as I've ever been they were more sure than that, right? They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, P 
Peter says that the scriptures are more sure than that. I was sure. They were more sure. The scriptures are even more sure. More sure than any experience with God that you or I could ever have. More sure than the experience of all experiences with God, the transfiguration. We have something more sure, the word of God. It's better that Jesus is away. We have the spirit and we have the word. I have a few applications for you. Um, I bet if Jesus was speaking in Washington, D.C. this weekend, you'd do everything you had to do to cancel your plans and go. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I would go too. But uh, every week, Sunday and Wednesday, we open the scriptures together. And somebody has dug around in there for hours before they get up here to make it, you know, edible. And the word of God is more sure than if we were to see Jesus face to face and if we were to hear God the Father speak audibly from heaven. We would all make the sacrifices to go to DC and that's, of course we would. But just let me affirm the series that we've just been through that Dr. Young has taken us through about life together. Should we not make even more sacrifices to get here every Sunday and Wednesday because the scriptures are more Sure. Number two, uh, personal Bible study. John Otley was telling the staff yesterday about a survey that was given in a church, megachurch in 2004. And uh, what they discovered is that the single most far and away, the single most catalytic spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline that catapulted people into spiritual growth like never before was personal Bible study. And, and not just Bible reading. Uh, here's a quote from the survey. It says, reflection on scripture is twice as catalytic as any other factor. Of course, to reflect on it, you have to read it, but not just reading it. You also have to interact with it and meditate on it and reflect on it. And you know, as I'm thinking about this, I think, you know, we have an affinity for the big and the glamorous. The transfiguration would be right up our alley. I mean, you sell tickets to that thing and you're going to be a millionaire. But the reality is that the path to spiritual maturity is a whole lot more normal than that. And by normal, I don't mean worse. It's not flashy, but it is better, as we've just found out. We have the Spirit, and we have the Word. We have everything we need. Um, John also told our staff about some resources that he has put together and he stole them from somewhere, but he has done the work to put them together. So uh, one of them is a New Testament Bible reading plan. There's a bunch of these up here if you'd like that. Um, and, and then these are just a couple different methods of maybe you get in the, that quiet time and you go, I don't really know what to do. And I don't really know how this should look. And it never does anything. Well, this is coaching. And uh, John says, probably more helpful for him personally than any other thing that he's had as an aid in personal Bible reflection, meditation, reading, etc. So that's there for you. Number three, think about the implications of what we've talked about um, for evangelism and discipleship. 
You know, the Great Commission at its core is a ministry of the Word. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We have what we've been commanded in the Scriptures. So, simply put, we have to reach new people, and we have to teach them the Word. And, but the, the Great Commission is not only for pastors. We all have a role to play in the making of disciples. I, I've said to my class, it takes a community to make a disciple. And so I would say that the primary context of disciple-making is the church. That said, every individual has some measure of personal responsibility in the making of disciples. So um, this book is out on the, uh, in the book nook out there, and I recommended it. It's mercifully short, and uh, it's very simple to tell what it's about. It's titled Evangelism, and that's what it's about. But this guy, Max Stiles, is an elder at a church in Dubai. And if you're not evangelistic in Dubai, nobody's coming. You know, it's not the Bible Belt. Um, you, you have to get out and like meet people and tell them about Jesus. Many of them have never heard about Jesus. So he has a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom in, in reaching out to neighbors evangelistically. And something he said in that book really stuck with me. He said, the single most fruitful method of evangelism far and away has been inviting people to study the Bible with you um, more than a track, a home run conversation, personally inviting someone to study the Bible with you. You know, it takes the pressure off of having that home run conversation when we feel like it's time and we just don't know what to say. It gives time for questions um, and, you know, it gets them in front of the word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and penetrates the deepest parts of who we are and it changes us and transforms us and the Spirit empowers the Word for ministry. And um, so I have a challenge for you. I've challenged my class the same and it's challenging to me. But by Christmas, I want you to start praying now and by Christmas, I want you to think about and actually invite someone to start reading a book of the Bible with you. Um, if you don't know where to start, anyone, you know, would be glad to help. I, I recommend the Gospel of John uh, for you ladies that are in the Bible study. That's easy because that's what y'all are studying already. But it's just one of the reasons I say that is it just gets people face to face with Jesus and his, his life, his ministry, the death and resurrection and uh, lots of, and it's fairly simple but deep. Um, that said, it's a challenge. Uh, invite someone to, and I have, I have seen this in my own uh, life and ministry. There are quite a few people, particularly in this culture, that are maybe not unchurched, but de-churched. They grew up in the church and they got burned or something happened and they've been out of the church for years. And people, you know, for a lot of reasons, some of them very good reasons, are not willing to come back to church just yet. But I bet you they'll meet you somewhere to study the Bible. And, and I bet we have a lot better reach if we're flexible in that and say, so come over to my house, go to the coffee shop, you know, whatever it is, there's the challenge. Number four, last, for those who are suffering, I know that when you're in the middle of a trial, you, you don't often have much energy, energy and you don't often have much ability to focus for very long periods of time at all. And, and when we're suffering, I think that's when we can think more than ever, if God would just show me something, if he would just give me something to hang my hat on, if he'd just give me a sign or something, then I would know that I'll be okay. He's not going to speak audibly. 
he's probably not going to give you a sign. But even if he did, the word of God is more sure. I know it's hard, but I think particularly when we are hurting, we have to fight to get in the word, even in small bite-sized chunks, that daily intake of the word of God. Until he returns at the end, it is better that Jesus is away. He has given us the spirit and he has given us his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how amazing is uh, your truth, your grace, this great salvation that we have been mercifully rescued into. We are thankful, Lord. Lord Jesus, it's all because of you, your life, your death. We're amazed and, and, and honestly a little bit surprised at what we've seen here tonight. But Lord, would you use this to make this a monumental moment in, in our lives, even in the life of our church. Help us to understand all that much more the, um, the authority of your word and uh, just the significance of your word, the, the gift of your spirit and the significance of your spirit. Lord, we ask for fresh fillings of your spirit. We ask for uh, boldness and we ask for uh, increased desires to love your word all the more. Would you put people in our paths that we just can't help but ask to read the Bible with us? Lord, would you use that effort to bring people to Christ? Nothing would make us uh, more glad than to see people coming in here from battered, broken pasts uh, to love our Savior alongside us. We thank you for your word. It is true. We thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.